Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Matthew 13, 31-33, and it's on page 979 in your pew Bibles. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet it grows. It is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour, until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you all for uh, wishing me uh, happy birthday and the beautiful voices. Um, for the record, I am 348 years old. I, uh, you sa- they say that uh, you uh, are never too uh, old to learn something. I learned something this morning. I learned that when... When Lorraine is here saying, Manuel, where are you on a microphone? You can hear it from inside the men's restroom. So, <laughs> so we're continuing on in the series of the 13th chapter of Matthew, where Jesus uh, uses a series of parables to describe the kingdom of God. And today our scripture uh, shares two related parables, uh, one involving yeast and dough and one mustard seed, which grows to the size of a tree. And I'm grateful to Teresa for being able to share that moment uh, with us this morning. Uh, She's not only an extraordinary bread maker and an extraordinary cellist, uh, she's also an extraordinary person. And we're, uh, those of us who who call her a friend count it a privilege to do so. I also brought another very good friend of mine. Her name name is Judith Monroe, and she's a Sacramento-based mixed media artist and friend of Oak Hills. So please welcome her this morning. Um, I invited her here to share her art with us, and in a sense, I'd like you to consider this sermon to be shared by both of us today, me with my words and Judith with her art, okay? Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be alive and at work and that we would have hearts that would be hearts that we open to whatever you have to say to us this morning. Uh, Lord, uh, change us and mold us and impress upon us again your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, I want to start off by talking about the kingdom of God um, revisited. Before I dive into these parables, I just want to do a quick review of what we've said about the kingdom of God. We subtitled this series, I Do Not Think the Kingdom Means What You Think It Means, um, and uh, because we feel very strongly that a more fully-orbed understanding of the kingdom of God is essential to living as a Christian, as a Christ follower. Now, in the last uh, couple of weeks, Kent and Mike have reminded us that the kingdom of God is not what most people think it means. And by the way, I strongly recommend, if you have not heard these last couple of messages or so, um, get online and listen to them. Now, the kingdom of God that Jesus referred to is not heaven up there, nor is it a place you go when you die. In fact, the kingdom of God is not a place at all. A kingdom 
is anywhere a king has rule and reign. So the kingdom of God is anywhere Christ, the king, can rule and reign. And this has profound implications. The kingdom of God can be right here as we worship if we allow the king to rule and reign here in our worship. The kingdom of God can be right here in your marriage if you allow the king to rule and reign in your marriage. It can be in your job if you allow the king to rule and reign in your job. It can be right here in your classroom or at your home or in your relationships or even in your art if you allow the king to rule and reign in your classroom or your home or your relationships or your art. See, the kingdom of God is wherever what God says goes. So anywhere that we allow King Jesus to reign is where the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven breaks out. And here's the thing. As uh, Mike and Kent have both reminded us, the gospel that is the good news that Jesus shares with the world is this. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is upon us and it's available. The gospel of Jesus is an invitation to let Jesus rule and reign right here and right now. And that's the thing. If you ask any Christian what is the gospel, they might refer to the four spiritual laws or they might repeat John 3.16 or they would say, you know, just accept Jesus and you get to go to heaven or some version of the salvation message. And that's true, partially. But here's where it becomes inconceivable. The salvation message is only one aspect of the gospel. The salvation message is only the front door to this great mansion called the good news. If the gospel to you is heaven when you die, or some version of the salvation message, then you may have made the gospel way, way, way too small. When Jesus shares his good news, he is announcing to himself, um, he is announcing himself. In the first chapter of Mark, he proclaims, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus is sharing an invitation to live in the grace of his rule and reign now and forever. And that invitation is not just a one-time event. It's not a one-time decision only. It's an everyday, every moment invitation. The gospel is a million decisions that take over your entire life. It's an invitation to live in right relationship with a righteous God, now and forever. So the gospel actually applies every time you choose to surrender your will to the will of Jesus. It's not instantaneous, like flipping on a light switch and suddenly everything is lit. It's more like dawn breaking, where over time as we learn to let God rule and reign in our lives, the light slowly pours through the windows and floods through every nook and cranny of the house. If you get one thing out of this six-week series, it's this truth. The kingdom of God has come near. And all you need to do is grasp it. So please continue to keep that in mind as we work through this series. The kingdom of God is inconceivable. It's not what you have been regularly taught that it is. It is so much more, so much greater. All right, so let's get to the two parables that we're going to talk about this morning. The parable of the mustard seed. 
In verses 31 and 32, Jesus continues his explanation of the kingdom of God by sharing the third of seven metaphors, the mustard seed. Now, in each of these successive metaphors, Jesus is emphasizing kind of one primary concept of what the kingdom is. With the sower a few weeks ago, it was having good soil and responding to the kingdom. With the weeds, it has to do with being a certain kind of person. With the mustard seed, he's emphasizing that the kingdom will start very, very small and may actually seem insignificant at first. But eventually it'll grow beyond our expectations, beyond our comprehension. Grow so large that it will surprise us. Now, Jesus always used common objects as metaphors. And he was speaking to an agrarian society. So everyone knew all about seeds and crops and wheat and weeds. And everyone knew how small a mustard seed is. But we live here in the 21st century, so you might not be as attuned to this metaphor. So I thought I would share what a mustard seed looks like. Let's put that on the screens. There we go. It's indeed a very, very small seed. Jesus is a master storyteller, and he's using this rhetorical hyperbole here. He's taking this little seed, which most would actually consider a weed, and he contends that this is how the kingdom of God will begin. So since uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, here's a photo of a full-grown mustard plant. Now, this plant is quite a different variety than the low-lying mustard plants here in North America. The plant can get quite large, as you can see. As Jesus says, it can grow large enough that the birds of the air can perch in its branches. And I want you to leave that up for a bit, because I want you to notice something about this plant. The mustard plant is a messy plant. It, it splays all over the place. It's invasive. It completely takes over. It grows wild. And it doesn't make fruit. It only makes more seeds. Now, the law of Moses makes certain prohibitions about this. In uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says this. Do not plant two kinds of seeds in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. So, Jewish people of the day probably wouldn't ever plant the mustard seed in their gardens. Mustard plants actually go wild, right? The idea that a person would purposely take a mustard plant... Uh, nestered seed and, and put it in their garden would defile everything else and it would seem outlandish for them to do so. So comparing the kingdom to a weedy, messy mustard plant is in stark contrast to what the Jews of the day commonly thought, that the coming kingdom would be established in awe and power and majesty with political and territorial implications. They probably would have thought Jesus would have said that the kingdom was like a mighty oak or like the cedars of Lebanon. But he doesn't. No, Jesus is saying it will start small, but then it'll take over the garden, spreading this way and that, and it'll be unstoppable. The kingdom will have very inconspicuous beginnings, but it will pervade the world in great and inconceivable ways. The Jews rightly believed that the arrival of God's kingdom would mean that the world would be transformed. But obviously it didn't occur in the way that they thought. It wasn't an overthrowing of the government. It wasn't the establishment of a country or the building of an army. 
As we know, the kingdom began on this earth in a dirty stable, in a manger, in a town considered the least of these. It began, uh, began with a poor handmaiden and a carpenter and a donkey. It became, uh, began in ex- obscurity and poverty and simple ordinariness. Indeed, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the least of seeds, and continues to grow in the hearts of people and through the generations of people beyond our human conceptions. So let's talk now about the second parable, the parable of the yeast in the dough. Teresa did a wonderful job of explaining the interaction of yeast in a lump of dough and how a very, very small amount of yeast will slowly but surely transform the entire makeup of the dough. And the resulting bread is uh, fluffier, tastier, and all ready for some yummy peanut butter and jelly. In the, in the previous parable, the primary concept of the kingdom of God is that it starts small and becomes amazingly large. In this parable of the yeast, the primary concept may be that the kingdom of God is subversive, is all permeating and all transforming. Yeast often had uh, negative connotations in the Bible. Leaven implied fermentation, uh, disintegration, um, corruption. And this is why this parable of Jesus was so effective. Jesus uses the metaphor of yeast and then he flips it. He means it now as something good, something subversively positive, something that infects the entirety of the dough until it is completely transformed. Now, there are a number of aspects of this metaphor that bear identifying. Teresa began that and I'm going to continue. First, the yeast is extremely small. Not only the small amount of it, but also that the yeast is small in nature. Yeast is a simple, single-celled fungus. But because of that, it can mix very deeply into the flour, permeating it, changing it. Also, bread making takes patience. Sometimes you have to just let it sit in order to let it do its work. The transformation happens slowly, sometimes in a way that is at first imperceptible. Another aspect is that the process of the yeast is irreversible. Once the process begins, you cannot put it back. It is worked all the way through the dough. It is changed forever. Now, there are two ways to see this. One is globally. The kingdom or the reign of Jesus permeates out into the world and changes it. From just a few disciples 2,000 years ago to all of Christendom today, Jesus is transforming this world. The second way to look at it is personally. For me personally, the reign of Jesus has gotten into my own heart. And slowly but surely, he's in the process of changing me, permeating every aspect of my life and causing me to become a different person. I am transformed, and it is not I, but Christ in me. This is the way of the kingdom. Finally, yeast works because it infects the substance by dwelling deeply in it. It's not like two separate substances. It changes the flower at a chemical level, at a molecular level. To be more plain, though we are not of the world, we must deeply inject ourselves into the world. And Jesus showed us how to deeply inject ourselves into the world by incarnating himself, by giving himself selflessly, and by loving the people around him. That's what Jesus did. He infected the world with his love. 
Now, there's a terrible witness going on right now where Christians have this us-against-them view of the world. I see this in a lot of social media and in politics and in attitudes from some people who profess to be Christ followers. We look at people as the enemy instead of seeing them as people who God wants us to love into the kingdom. Being missional means in part that we must uh, see the world as something that God deeply loves and longs to bring into his loving rule and reign. You see, this us versus them mentality that's out there is exactly the opposite of how Jesus modeled how to live out the gospel. He loved people unconditionally, and he loved them into the kingdom. Honestly, I wish more Christians would get this. All this self-righteousness and political posturing is a terrible witness to the kingdom of God. Let me share one more bread metaphor that Jesus shares in the book of John. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I love that Jesus calls himself the bread of life. Remember, we're talking about this pre-modern agrarian civilization here where hunger was a way of life. Every man, woman, and child knew the pangs of hunger, knew what it was like to have to think about where their next meal was going to come from. And Jesus says, there's another hunger that you have, a deeper, more spiritual hunger. And the only thing that will ultimately satisfy that spiritual hunger is me. This is outlandish. This is incredible. This is inconceivable. But it's also so very Jesus. So invitational and selfless and grace-filled. Jesus offers himself for our sake to the entire world. Indeed, the kingdom of God has come near. I want to talk a little bit about the nature of metaphor in verses 34 and 35. Jesus shares both of these parables kind of in rapid succession and I believe it's because that they're related together both of these parables are inverted parabolic metaphors that shake up how people were seeing things they both emphasize inconspicuous beginnings subversiveness permeation and complete transformation and then in verses 34 and 35 the Bible explains why Jesus spoke in parables He fulfills prophecy in this way. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So I want to talk a little bit about the nature of metaphor. Um, A number of years ago, I was approached by a concerned visitor to our church after one of the worship services. She was asking for clarification about something regarding the message today, that day, And then during the conversation, we got on the subject versus literal versus figurative language in the Bible. And I was trying to help her grasp that the Bible is far more poetic 
than we realize, certainly far more poetic than she realized. You mean you don't believe that the Bible is literally true? She challenged me. So I replied, it depends on the passage of Scripture, doesn't it? Everything in the Bible is wholly true, but not everything in the Bible is literal. In fact, a lot of it is actually quite metaphorical. She was taken aback. Well, what about being born again? Don't you believe that you need to be born again to be a Christian? Obviously, there was a disconnect going on here. So explain more. When Jesus said, you must be born again, he actually wasn't being literal. He was being figurative. I think what you're asking me is if you believe, we believe that it's really, really true. So the answer is yes, we believe that it's really, really true, metaphorically, to be born again. But it's not literally true. So let me explain this. In the third chapter of the book of John, Jesus was trying to explain to this really learned man named Nicodemus the keys to the kingdom. In his own creative and unique manner, Jesus employed the beautifully rich metaphor of birth to explain the regeneration that comes from believing and living in the Spirit. Of course, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, entirely misses the point of the Jesus teaching because he interpreted it Jesus literally. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus replies to Jesus with this. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You see, Nicodemus was being literal. Jesus was being figurative. Jesus was using this beautiful metaphor of birth and old Nick misses the truth completely. So, jumping back to Matthew in verses 34 and 35. Here's an explanation of why Jesus was always using these parables and similes and metaphors. He was uttering things hidden since the creation of the world. Concepts and ideas that are way too big for us to fully comprehend. And so parables were the best way to paint these large and expansive thoughts for our small minds. These were the mysteries of the kingdom being revealed right before them. And literalism is simply insufficient and inadequate to express them. I love this because it once again points out how Jesus was a master storyteller. He had the heart of a poet, an artist, because he is the creator God. And there's one other aspect to these parables. Jesus used parables to separate people. He didn't simply want to tickle the ears of the crowds. He wanted them to think to wrestle with the concepts, and to honestly seek out truth. You see, there's a, a richness to eternal truth that isn't so easy to get at. It requires a bit of work to grasp the deeper meanings. When Jesus used the parables, he was, in a sense, inviting his listeners to ponder. It's like a, a gourmet meal. When I was a kid... I hated stuff like artichokes or calamari or lobster. The subtleties of such foods escaped me. I wanted potato chips and licorice and hot dogs. Actually, I still like those foods, so maybe the analogy breaks down a little bit there. But my point is, it takes time to develop the palate for more sophisticated foods. And so it is with truth. I've noticed this in myself. As I've gotten older, I'm 348 years old, I, I have realized that things I know 
to be true have become more profound and more far-reaching in their implications. I'm starting to understand that truth is both simple and impossibly complicated and deeply profound. For example, grace is a truth that I find to be more and more profound the more I experience it. The older I get, the more I come to understand the layers of my own sinfulness and God's corresponding grace has become for me a vast ocean with no bottom. Love is a truth that I find myself lost in sometimes. I love my wife at a level that I simply could not understand 30 years ago. Sorry. I've recently experienced the love for grandchildren, which is a wholly different kind of love that I didn't even know existed. Beauty is a truth that I am learning to attune myself to more and more. Taking the time to reflect on the beauty of a brand new day or a field of grass or the sound of crickets in the evening. Recently, um, Debbie placed a hummingbird feeder outside the kitchen window and every day lately, I see the shadows of hummingbirds dance on our kitchen counter. That's a sermon right there. Here's the thing. These glimpses of truth through, through grace and through love and through beauty These are evidences that the kingdom of God is alive and operative in the world. The good news is expressed in grace and love and beauty and things like this. So Jesus was talking about things hidden since the creation of the world. Mysteries which required an open mind and deep thinking and honestly, some humility. Simply realizing that we don't know all there is to know. When Jesus speaks to us in parables, he offers us an invitation to ponder more deeply in him. In a sense, he's testing our hearts. He's testing those who want to hear him. Are you ready to hear the truth? Are you hungry for it? Are you hungry for something deeper? Are you ready in humility and openness to possibly be turned inside out and upside down by the truth? And here's the thing. Jesus still poses these same questions to us now, here in this 13th chapter of Matthew. Now, I'm going to get to that last point. I realize that right after these services are concluded today, there's going to be a rush of adrenaline as a hundred or more of you start becoming very, very busy for Arts Camp. Um, Some of you, your minds are probably busy thinking about the hundred things to do on your list. But as we uh, conclude our service today, I want to give you permission to just stop all that. I want you to put down your mental list of things to do for just a moment. Because I want, you to op- I want to offer you a moment to be still and meditate. And take a quiet step into his kingdom. As we conclude our service today, I'd like you to all enter into an exercise in pondering. All right. So I'd like to ask the house lights to come down a little bit. And we're going to take a look at this painting. We were talking about Jesus being metaphorical in his parables as a way uh, to invite us to ponder the truth more deeply. Well, art is metaphorical in nature. 
Art forces us to pause and ponder and reflect. Art can carry with it a form of truth that is nonverbal and non-rational. So right now, as you are all sitting there, I'd like to invite you to reflect on Judith's painting and take a relaxed posture and focus a little bit. Look at it. Think on it. Meditate on it. And perhaps the Spirit of God might be saying something to you this morning. Meditate on God's Word. What is He saying about the mustard seed? Focus on what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And as you meditate, I will ask you a few questions. Think about where you're planted. In your job or classroom, as a manager or a worker or a retired person. Think about your circumstances. But also think about the people around you, the people in your life. Where are you planted? yourself is the kingdom of God showing up in me where I am planted right now am I being a mustard seed are there areas in your life where God is calling you to grow the kingdom of God. Either in your own heart or outward into the lives of others. Where is God calling you to go? Who is God calling you to share with? What is God calling you to do? that you have become stilted or paralyzed but you know you need to move forward in your spiritual walk where do you need to surrender where are the areas in the life in your life where you need to surrender to the rule and reign of Jesus God telling you right now? Father, Son, and Spirit, we come before you acknowledging 
that you are the king. That you rule and reign in our hearts. And yet, Lord, you call us to much more. You call us to the deeper truth. You call us to deeper relationship with you. You call us to something more. Help us, Lord, to have your view of the world. Help us, Lord, to have your view of ourselves that we might continue to grow in you, that we might be able to continue to grow your kingdom. Father, Son, and Spirit, we love you. We lay it down before you. You are a king forever. Forever.